section four of a history of our own times volume two by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter nineteen don pacifico part two a large number of liberals were no doubt influenced by this view of the situation and by the framing of the resolution but there were some who could not be led into any approval of the particular transaction which the resolution if not intended to cover would certainly be made to cover there were others too who even on the broader field opened purposely up by the resolution honestly believed that lord palmerston's general policy was an incessant violation of the principle of non-intervention and was therefore injurious to the character and safety of the country in a prolonged and powerful debate some of the foremost men on both sides of the house opposed and denounced the policy of the government for which as every one knew lord palmerston was almost exclusively responsible the allied troops who led the attack says mr evelyn ashley in his life of lord palmerston were english protectionists and foreign absolutists it is strange that an able and usually fair-minded man should be led into such an absurdity lord palmerston himself called it a shot fired by a foreign conspiracy aided and abetted by a domestic intrigue but lord palmerston was the minister personally assailed and might be excused perhaps for believing at the moment that warring monarchs were giving the fatal wound and that the attack on him was the work of the combined treachery of europe an historian looking back upon the events after an interval of a quarter of a century ought to be able to take a calmer view of things among the english protectionists who took a prominent part in condemning the policy of lord palmerston was mr gladstone mr cobden sir robert peel sir william molesworth and mr sidney herbert in the house of lords lord brougham lord canning and lord aberdeen had supported the resolution of lord stanley the truth is that lord palmerston's proceedings were fairly open to difference of judgment even on the part of the most devoted liberals and the most independent thinkers it did not need that a man should be a protectionist or an absolutist to explain his entire disapproval of such a course of conduct as that which had been followed out with regard to greece it seems to us now quietly looking back at the whole story hardly possible that a man with for example the temperament and the general views of mr gladstone could have approved of such a policy obviously impossible that a man like mr cobden could have approved of it these men simply followed their judgment and their conscience the principal interest of the debate now rests in the manner of lord palmerston's defence the speech was indeed a masterpiece of parliamentary argument and address it was in part a complete exposition and defence of the whole course of the foreign policy which the noble speaker had directed but although the resolution treated only of the general policy of the government lord palmerston did not fail to make a special defence of his action toward greece he based his vindication of this particular chapter of his policy on the ground which of all others gave him most advantage in addressing a parliamentary assembly he contended that in all he had done he had been actuated by the resolve that the poorest claimant who bore the name of an english citizen should be protected by the whole strength of england against the oppression of a foreign government 
his speech was an appeal to all the elementary emotions of manhood and citizenship and good fellowship to vote against him seemed to be to declare that england was unable or unwilling to protect her children a man appeared to be guilty of an unpatriotic and ignoble act who censured the minister whose only error if error it were was a too proud and generous resolve to make the name of england and the rights of englishmen respected throughout the world a good deal of ridicule had been heaped not unnaturally on don pacifico his claims his career and his costly bed furniture lord palmerston turned that very ridicule to good account for his own cause he repelled with a warmth of seemingly generous indignation the suggestion that because a man was lowly pitiful even ridiculous even of doubtful conduct in his earlier career therefore he was one with whom a foreign government was not bound to observe any principles of fair dealing at all he protested against having serious things treated jocosely as if any man in parliament had ever treated serious things more often in a jocose spirit he protested against having the house kept in a roar of laughter at the poverty of one sufferer or at the miserable habitation of another at the nationality of one man or the religion of another as if because a man was poor he might be bastinadoed and tortured with impunity as if a man who was born in scotland might be robbed without redress or because a man is of the jewish persuasion he is a fair mark for any outrage lord palmerston had also a great advantage given to him by the argument of some of his opponents that whatever the laws of a foreign country a stranger has only to abide by them and that a government claiming redress for any wrong done to one of its subjects is completely answered by the statement that he has suffered only as inhabitants of the country themselves have suffered the argument against lord palmerston was pushed entirely too far in this instance and it gave him one of his finest opportunities for reply it is true as a general rule in the intercourse of nations that a stranger who goes voluntarily into a country is expected to abide by its laws and that his government will not protect him from their ordinary operation in every case where it may seem to press hardly or even unfairly against him but in this understanding is always involved a distinct assumption that the laws of the state are to be such as civilization would properly recognize supposing that the state in question professes to be a civilized state it is also distinctly assumed that the state must be able and willing to enforce its own laws where they are fairly invoked on behalf of a foreigner if for instance a foreigner has a just claim against some continental government and that government will not recognize the claim or recognizing it will not satisfy it and the government of the injured man intervenes and asks that his claim shall be met it would never be accounted a sufficient answer to say that many of the inhabitants of the country had been treated just in the same way and had got no redress if there were a law in turkey or any other slave-owning state that a man who could not pay his debts was liable to have his wife and daughter sold into slavery it is certain that no government like that of england would hear of the application of such a law to the family of a poor english trader settled in constantinople there is no clear rule easy to be laid down perhaps there can be no clear rule on the subject at all but it is evident that the governments of all civilized countries do exercise a certain protectorate over their subjects in foreign countries and do insist in extreme cases 
that the laws of the country shall not be applied or denied to them in a manner which a native resident might think himself compelled to endure without protest it is not even so in the case of manifestly harsh and barbarous laws alone or of the denial of justice in a harsh and barbarous way the principle prevails even in regard to laws which are in themselves unexceptionable and necessary no government for example will allow one of its subjects living in a foreign country to be brought under the law for the levying of the conscription there and compelled to serve in the army of the foreign state all this only shows that the opponents of lord palmerston made a mistake when they endeavoured to obtain any general assent to the principle that a minister does wrong who asks for his fellow-subjects at the hands of a foreign government any better treatment than that which the government in question administers and without revolt to its own people lord palmerston was not the man to lose so splendid an opportunity he really made it appear as if the question between him and his opponents was that of the protection of englishmen abroad as if he were anxious to look after their lives and safety while his opponents were urging the odious principle that when once an englishman puts his foot on a foreign shore his own government renounced all intent to concern themselves with any fate that might befall him here was a new turn given to the debate a new opportunity afforded to those who while they did not approve exactly of what had been done with greece were nevertheless anxious to support the general principles of lord palmerston's foreign policy the speech was a marvellous appeal to what are called english interests in a peroration of thrilling power lord palmerston asked for the verdict of the house to decide whether as the roman in days of old held himself free from indignity when he could say quis romanus sum so also a british subject in whatever land he may be shall feel confident that the watchful eye and the strong arm of england will protect him against injustice and wrong when lord palmerston closed his speech the overwhelming plaudits of the house foretold the victory he had won it was indeed a masterpiece of telling defence the speech occupied some five hours in delivery it was spoken as mr gladstone afterwards said from the dusk of one day to the dawn of the next it was spoken without the help of a single note lord palmerston always wisely thought that in order to have full command of such an audience a man should if possible never make use of notes he was quite conscious of his own lack of the higher gifts of imagination and emotion that make the great orator but he knew also what a splendid weapon of attack and defence was his fluency and readiness and he was not willing to weaken the effect of its spontaneity by the interposition of a single note all this great speech therefore full as it was of minute details names dates figures references of all kinds was delivered with the same facility the same lack of effort the same absence of any adventitious aids to memory which characterized palmerston's ordinary style when he answered a simple question nothing could be more complete than palmerston's success kiwis romanus settled the matter who was in the house of commons so rude that he would not be a roman who was there so lacking in patriotic spirit that would not have all his countrymen as good as any roman citizen of them all it was to little purpose that mr gladstone in a speech of singular argumentative power pointed out 
that a roman citizen was the member of a privileged caste of a victorious and conquering nation of a nation that held all others bound down by the strong arm of power which had one law for him and another for the rest of the world which asserted in his favour principles which it denied to all others it was in vain that mr gladstone asked whether lord palmerston thought that was the position which it would become a civilised and christian nation like england to claim for her citizens the glory of being a kiwis romanus was far too strong for any mere argument drawn from fact and common sense to combat against it the phrase had carried the day when mr cockburn in supporting lord palmerston's policy quoted from classical authority to show that the romans had always avenged any wrongs done to their citizens and cited from one of cicero's speeches against veres quat bella maiores nostros et quanta suscepisse arbitramine quad quies romani injuriat affecti quad naviculari retenti quad mercantores poliati dicerentur the house cheered more tumultuously than ever in vain was the calm grave studiously moderate remonstrance of sir robert peel who while generously declaring that palmerston's speech made us all proud of the man who delivered it yet recorded his firm protest against the style of policy which palmerston's eloquence had endeavoured to glorify the victory was all with palmerston he had in the words of shakespeare's rosalind wrestled well and overthrown more than his enemies after a debate of four nights a majority of forty-six was given for the resolution the ministry came out not only absolved but triumphant the odd thing about the whole proceeding is that the ministers in general heartily disapproved of the sort of policy which palmerston put so energetically into action at least they disapproved if not his principles yet certainly his way of enforcing them before this debate came on lord john russell had made up his mind that it would be impossible for him to remain in office with lord palmerston as foreign secretary none the less however did lord john russell defend the policy of the foreign office in a speech which palmerston himself described as admirable and first-rate the ministers felt bound to stand by the actions which they had not repudiated at the time when they were done they could not allow lord palmerston to be separated from them in political responsibility when they had not separated themselves from moral responsibility for his proceedings in time therefore they had to defend in parliament what they did not pretend to approve in private the theory of a cabinet always united when attacked rendered doubtless such a course of proceeding necessary in parliamentary tactics it would perhaps be hard to make it seem quite satisfactory to the simple and unsophisticated mind no part of our duty calls on us to attempt such a task it was a famous victory we must only settle the question as old caspar disposed of the doubts about the propriety of the praise given to the duke of marlborough and our good prince eugene it is not telling a lie says someone in thackeray it is only voting with your party but thackeray had never been in the house of commons of many fine speeches made during this brilliant debate we must notice one in particular it was that of mr cockburn then member for southampton a speech to which allusion has already been made never in our time has a reputation been more suddenly completely and deservedly made 
than mr cockburn won by his brilliant display of ingenious argument and stirring words the manner of the speaker lent additional effect to his clever and captivating eloquence he had a clear sweet penetrating voice a fluency that seemed so easy as to make listeners sometimes fancy that it ought to cost no effort and a grace of gesture such as it must be owned the courts of law where he had had his training did not often teach mr cockburn defended the policy of palmerston with an effect only inferior to that produced by palmerston's own speech and with the rhetorical grace and finish to which palmerston made no pretension in writing to lord normanby about the debate lord palmerston distributed his praise to friends and enemies with that generous impartiality which was a fine part of his character gladstone's attack on his policy he pronounced a first-rate performance peel and disraeli he praised likewise but as to cockburns he said i do not know that i ever in the course of my life heard a better speech from anybody without any exception the effect which cockburn's speech produced on the house was well described in the house itself by one who rose chiefly for the purpose of disputing the principles it advocated mr cobden observed that when mr cockburn had concluded his speech one half of the treasury benches were left empty while honourable members ran after one another tumbling over each other in their haste to shake hands with the honourable and learned member mr cockburn's career was safe from that hour it is needless to say that he well upheld in after years the reputation he won in a night the brilliant and sudden success of the member from southampton was but the fitting prelude to the abiding distinction won by the lord chief justice of england End of section four